and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us today. As you know, on this show, we cover a range of topics. Uh, it's been pretty heavily political for a long time because it's kind of hard to have a conversation that doesn't steer political. Um, but we do like to deviate and um, stay close to literature, culture, films, dance, art, and yes, poetry. Uh, so today, I'm very, very excited to welcome our guest, a great friend of mine and a gifted poet, Anthony Cody. Thank you for being here, Anthony. Thank you for having me. It's been a year in the making, so I appreciate it. We have been working on this for a while, haven't we? Like, yo, you got to come on the show. And then uh, I don't know what happened. Probably something I did. Probably something I did. <laughs> it was probably something. It may be a pandemic. Maybe. Kind of, well, I, I, I love I love using COVID as an excuse for everything, but then some things it just doesn't work for. Like, oh, I'm sorry I couldn't do that remote podcast with you. You know, it was COVID. <laughs> also, you know, sorry I didn't return your phone call. Uh, you know, uh, it's a pandemic and all. Just couldn't couldn't answer my phone. In any case, I'm really glad that you're here, and the timing is good. Um, I'll let our listeners know uh, that you, and please let me know if I get any of the biographical notes wrong, but you did complete your Master of Fine Arts in Poetry at Fresno State recently. And while you were there, as I understand, you worked on the manuscript for what eventually became this book. The book is called Borderland Apocrypha. Uh, and I encourage everyone to look it up. It is available for sale all over the place. You can just look up Borderland Apocrypha. And Omnidon is the publisher. Um but, you know, Cody and I go so far back that uh, we were both still just young writers in New York City trying to figure out what the next thing might be. Um, and I'm thrilled to share your work with people today. And, you know, because you're a poet. See, nobody does this to me. If anybody ever interviews me about nonfiction, they know that I'm long winded. So they don't ask me to read. But poets have to read. <laughs> <laughs> people people are like you already talk too much we don't need you to read you you know like at because i just finished my uh mfa at nyu as well we had a reading and it was a joint reading it was poetry and nonfiction was together fiction had their own thing because those guys are always on another planet you know uh everybody else that was graduating was a was a poet i was the only nonfiction person and i uh you know we were we got like three or four minutes I took 15 minutes to, you know, because I wanted to read the whole thing. And then I was like, well, the rest of these people are poets. They went under time, right? I was like, the poets went under time. <laughs> Their stuff is shorter. So just round it up. And of course, I was getting hit in the chat by the head of the program. Oh, do you think you're going to wrap it up? But I couldn't. There was, that story had a great punchline. Uh, so <laughs> all of that is to say, uh, we're going to ask you to do some readings today. But I, I do want to give a little bit of an overview about the project. It deals with some very salient uh, very serious themes involving lynching, involving the southwestern United States and Mexicans and Mexican-Americans um, in a way that is uh, manages to kind of disassemble your mind, no matter what your connection to that place and people is, and, and put it back together. I know that these concepts have been cooking for you. You grew up in California. You're from the Central Valley. You are Mexican-American. Um, but when did this start to gel a little bit? You know, like every every... I think every writing project is is in the cloud always. I'm always pre-writing because I'm thinking about things, but usually there's one idea, one piece of lint in the dryer that it all starts yeah. to collect around. So when did that when did that start? You know, I think it was <clears throat> like the most cohesive idea for the book and the energy for the book really started around 2015 and it was actually looking at the Southern Poverty Law Center 
uh, website. Um, you know, there was an election happening and uh, crime, hate crime was on the rise. And I'm looking at this uh, slider, kind of this a one of those interactive maps, right? You can, you know, click back in time, click back in time, look, see what's happening. And then I got back to like around 1840 and you see how sort of um, lynching and hate crime sort of were working on this um, movement from the South um, to the West. And I started looking at like 1840s and I'm like, what's going on? Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Okay. And then I see like several, like in the, in the Valley and in like the larger Valley, right? Like the great Valley of California. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is, you know, these are all the things that I know and aware of that I've written about that I thought about. But like at that moment, kind of, that was like the first like lightning strike where I was like, you know, I, I can do something. I can speak to this. And I started going and I started going and I started writing all the series of like poems around the lynchings, around the histories um, following 1848. And then the next lightning strike that really kind of like pushed it over the top was actually going to Walgreens and trying to get my passport. <laughs> I'm literally standing there waiting to get a passport photo and this old guy comes up to me and gets kind of close. He gets like really close. Like, you know, what are you up to? What's going on? Why are you trying to get a passport? Where are you running from? You know, and it's one of those things where like for those of us who are ethnically ambiguous or, you know, like maybe sometimes the Irish part of me jumps out more to people. Sometimes the Mexican part jumps out more and I'm into these other conversations and I don't know what's happening. And is this like a microaggression? Is he just, is this guy just trying to just be racist? Want me to say something about Mexican? I don't know. And then I just kind of just stepped a little bit to him, didn't do anything. And he just kind of ran off and freaked out. Um, (laughs) You punked him him out of the passport line. (laughs) I mean, casually, casually. So instead of like, instead of like, you know, in, in, you know, participating in this, I ended up writing a book. Um, yeah, so that's actually the opening section of my old book. So, um, <laughs> well, I was going to say moments. that I'm yeah. right. Well, first of all, there's there's the history to unpack. And I do want to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But I'm glad that you mentioned the um, that specific moment and that specific poem, because it is the, the first poem in the book. I was going to ask you to read that already. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a good place to start. And then we'll talk a little bit about um, formatting and I'll hold some of it up to the screen and explain a little bit to our listeners. But let's let's hear it in your voice uh, first and then we can kind of talk a little bit about it from there. OK, so the poem that I'm going to be sharing is based on that event. And actually, the whole opening section, I would say, is uh, really based on that event and thinking about history and cascading of history and like the complexities of our histories because we're never like at the same time thinking about one thing. We're always thinking about hundreds of things. Even right now, you know, you might be listening to this thinking about, did I turn off the oven? Now am I going to make dinner? Did I take out the trash? When was the last time I took the dog out? Is that white man going to do a microaggression or a hate crime on me? You know, these things are like always brewing, right? So this first poem is really thinking about that, honoring that chaos. The title is standing in line to take a passport photo an old white man looks at me and claims i'm running standing here because my grandpa ran away from home to sell perfume in ozokalo at nine in line i am a lot of things 
And since I am a lot of things, I am everything he cannot imagine. A passport photo asks me to two by two myself and capture what I am in neutral. And I recall I have yet to see the chambers of my heart turn tusk. An old white man is not Gil Scott Heron saying, because I always feel like running, not away, because there is no such place, is not how you pronounce exile or escapar. Looks at me how Teddy Roosevelt died coveting a white buffalo. Claims, I am afraid. No, I am a wall. No, I am a mirror. I am still, so still. Wow, fantastic. I do, again, this is where I want to point out the formatting because reading this, it's it's wonderful to hear you read it, obviously. Um, I think most poets would say that poetry is meant to be read, but it is a, a different experience reading it because of the formatting on the page. Um, and I'll hold it up a little bit, but, and also yeah. explain uh, to readers. I can talk, you know, I can talk a little bit about it. I'll break it down. It Please, do. Please um, do. Well, you know, one of the things that for me in my process of writing um, I'm always writing on different sheets of paper, envelopes, large scale, cardboard, whatever. And actually, I found myself writing on a funny comic strip, like the funnies from like the old days of newspapers. Um, it was a five by 17 strip. And I wrote a title and it was a 17 inch long title. And so I had to figure out what to do with it. And so like in that confluence of having to fill fill up that space, sort of the poem, the shape, the book really found itself. And so I was able to bring in like that whole like constellation of topic of both the personal and like the historical political. Um, otherwise it wouldn't have been that way. So like the book is, you know, in landscape form. So you can open it up and really see that like five by 17 breadth of the page spread yes this is a uh, this is a landscape you know an absolute landscape format for each piece that unfolds uh i'm i'm first of all i'm struck by the footnotes because not only a lot of this feels like footnotes already you know standing in line what is the significance of standing the piece follows from there standing here because my grandpa ran away but there are actual footnotes in here that are numbered um are you you know, instruct us as readers, are, are those intended to be referenced or noted? Uh, because they're not footnotes that appear actually at the foot of this page. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, one of the things I'm always struggling with is what gets buried in the footnotes, what gets like erased or hidden in the footnotes. Sometimes like the actual history is in the footnotes. So one of the things I was thinking about when I made that poem is to use the footnote almost as a navigational tool for the next poems. So actually there's seven subsequent poems that cascade from it um, immediately after it in the collection um, in like the the biggest bravado of of reading the, the collection I think I would read all those poems at once in if I had the opportunity <laughs> in the future but um right because each one continues right this yes. the standing one the next piece also begins or, or uh, standing yeah. here, and then the yeah, one so after the next that poem, begins yep. in line, and the next one begins a passport photo. Mm -hmm. Right. 
but then also like you know these are these are new forms right these are different things that maybe a casual reader wouldn't necessarily know so in some ways what i use that opening section for a, a relatively experimental book is to help sort of let the reader know that what they're experiencing is going to be different but i'm going to try to like take your hand through it right you can still see that you can read this left to right it's still being numbered you know left to right so you can see what steps to go so that way people aren't necessarily jarred and close the book and throw it in the corner and run away. Yeah, I thought, I mean, you used the word relatively experimental. I don't read a lot of poetry. I read some poetry, but this felt very experimental to me. Is this, are forms like this happening? Were they happening in the poetry world for a while? Were you borrowing or inspired or are you kind of breaking the mold here a little bit? I think it's a, you know, experimentalism obviously has been happening and there are some parts, some moments where I am borrowing from like larger conversations, but this form specifically is something that, you know, kind of just, I made up on the fly thinking about really inspired by sentence diagrams and like linguistics <laughs> and not being, <laughs> and me and me not being like the linguistics person, not being smart enough to make a sentence tree. I suddenly started making me something look more like a chronology and a border that I had to keep crossing. <laughs> yeah. They, they function as timelines as well in some ways, right? A lot of this mm -hmm. is even chronological, um, which, much. you know, I, I do want to ask about the history. You know, this is a book uh, that is concerned with lynching. There's a lot of very literal content here about specific lynchings. And there's a lot of metaphorical content about the nature of lynchings and trees. Um, I think in this country, when we hear that word, obviously we associate it most with black Americans in in the South, not exclusively in the South, but most commonly in the South. Um, and you know, uh, there's been a lot of legislation historically. This was something that there was a lot of uh, attention paid to because there was a lack of accountability in places because a lynching is a murder, um, but no one was getting killed for lynchings. Lynchings also became in a very sick way, like a community event. The whole town would come out and watch someone get lynched and take souvenirs. Very, very dark, dark mm -hmm. chapter of our mm -hmm. history. But the part of it I think that people are less familiar with that I'm certainly less familiar with is uh, lynching in the Southwest, specifically of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. And you mentioned the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the connection there. Can you flesh out a little bit of that history yeah, to kind of yeah, help so, us to understand when that yeah, started and why? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think I'll work backwards because one of the things I think that's kind of important and I and I do, there's moments where I do um, nod to moments of like state sanctioned lynchings that have happened like across time. Because I think that's one of the, the elements that's probably most effective in terms of policing, right? To like sort of erase historical memory to make it to make people think that, oh, no, this was something only specific to a certain group. We didn't do that like hundreds of times. right? We didn't do that a whole bunch of times in this acquisition of this land. And um, so I think that helps kind of make it if if for like movements and like change to happen, it's better for folks for things to stay the same by saying, oh, it was just that one time in the South. It was just really then. But really what we're thinking about is like that history of how like settler colonial kind of construct to like exert violence on people to sort of move them out of land, to control, to exploit that kind of thing. Um, and thinking about that, and thinking about like the 1848 treaty, and suddenly this acquisition of land, you suddenly have people wanting to, you know, manifest destiny out 
into the West and start helping, uh, quote unquote, settle the land, um, you have to get rid of people, right? And so you can become American and assimilate, or you can uh, go back to where you came from, which is oddly is, you know, what was happening then, which is happening now. And in those situations, they were couldn't go back to where they came from because they were in Mexico, right? And I think about even my own my own um, ancestors in Arizona. They were living in their in their place in Arizona, and suddenly it became U.S. So where do you go back to? Um, so in that way, this violence and these harms were ways to assert dominance and power and force people off of land. In fact, the first lynching um, in California was. Um, was a woman by the name of Josefa Segovia in Downeyville. And she was actually a woman who owned property. And um, it was just after the 4th of July. And sure enough, people wanted, uh, didn't like that she had acquired power. They tried to attack her. She fought back, stabbed somebody in the fight. It became, hey, this woman has is, doesn't know her place. And so now we're going to go out and we're going to lynch her. So they literally took her out to the the bandstand over the river for the uh, for the Fort July fireworks. And instead of uh, being forced to be lynched, uh, she just jumped. Um, and that's actually one of the poems in the collection. Um, so using that to kind of like exert fear, exert control to like acquire power, land. And you see that happening. And it's one of the things for me that was, I think, most troubling because like when I started, I'm thinking, oh, you know, 1848, 1850, 1850s. And then I keep going and I keep researching and I keep pulling that thread, right? And the thread keeps moving forward and forward and forward. And you see it like not stop, but just really get different names, right? Like suddenly it's like protect and serve, <laughs> you know, it's like now here, you know, now, now instead of the vigilance committee, and the posse is the sheriffs. In fact, I think um, there's an epigraph in the book where the old attorney general, uh, Jeff Sessions, says something like the greatest uh, part of white culture is the sheriff's association. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, you know, that's white culture. Okay, got it, got it. I figured that out. Um, Very helpful, Mr. Sessions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So seeing that, seeing that time in that moment of that acquisition in the Southwest of how there was, there, it was a, it, this was something that was effective in ways, right? They were able to displace people, remove people. Um, they're already undertaking this across the West with, you know, with native American removals and this is already happening. So just, it's like that next level of, okay, we've gotten, we've, we've moved these people off their land. Now we can move these other people off their land through violence and threat. And suddenly, now we can have the American dream in the West. Yeah, it's, a, it's, 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 you know, it's a long meandering sort of thing, but it just keeps happening and happening. I went to a, a punk rock show in Tucson many years ago, and the band was called Azatlan Underground. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of popular at the time. Do you know them? Do you know Azatlan Underground? Across the border, the border crossed us. Exactly. With the song. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> I, I went to go see the show and they, they wanted to have people. I was there as part of um, a group of young people who were working on border issues and, you know, immigration and stuff like that, mostly around 
police brutality, but like um, police brutality is related to immigration and border patrol. So there were a lot of young people there, like a lot of young activists. And a lot of them were like, oh, let's go see this Azatlan underground show. And the venue was like, because we were young people, a lot of us were under 21 and they were like a 21 and up place. But they were like, okay, we'll separate the venue in half, like so that that you can have like the bar and drinking on one side and then like so but the young people can be there and we won't be like breaking the law or whatever so they erected a chain link fence halfway through the venue right and on one side it was all these young people um mostly mexican or mexican-american or latino or indigenous uh and then on the other side you know because the university of arizona is there um it was like a lot of college kids mostly white college kids you know who were there for the punk rock show and then once they finally got to the you know like they're building up to their track we didn't we didn't cross the border the border crossed us uh when they finally get to that it's a real i mean you know it's a great song uh i I recommend anybody to go look it up but they just keep thrashing we didn't cross the border the border crossed us we didn't cross the border the border crossed us and kind of all at once you know people on the young people side of the fence kind of looked at the fence and they were like you know you couldn't have a, a more powerful illustration of what they were talking about so it turned into this crazy melee where like the young people tore down uh the fence the college kids on the other side were like you know of course fearful oh we're gonna be attacked you know by all these like brown youth or whatever uh it wasn't as bad as it could have been like you know obviously like the police came and the show was over and i'm sure azatlan underground was very happy like with that result we're like yeah man burn it down uh but it was it was a time this was many years ago you know i was probably 19 years old um and i was unfamiliar with the history of geography that you could be a person in arizona or a person in Southern California and be like, I'm, I'm Mexican. You'd be like, Oh, like, well, when did your family come here? Be like, what do you mean? Like (laughs) we, this was Mexico. And I think that story or that timeline, as you said, is one of many histories that's buried that so much um, of our, of the American Southwest was a part of Mexico and culturally you know, still is in many ways. And and we're talking a lot about Maricopa County. We still talk about uh, Arizona a lot. We still are talking about Texas. Uh, and in, in a bit of a pivot, I do want to ask the, the context in which you were writing this. You mentioned that you started while well, there was an election going on and it wasn't just any election. It was people were starting to campaign in 2015 or so for the 2016 election. Um, so without talking too much, we don't we don't say the name of the person who was the president before in the show because it's just like whatever. Do we? Do we say? I usually say he who shall not be named. That's usually what I say. He who shall not be named. We have definitely said his name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. I go, with, it's, I go with forty-five or fake forty-five. It's one or the other. Yeah. It just seems silly to say the name. Anyway, there was a president. (laughs) uh, And that time was, I mean, it was dark in so many ways. And I really don't want to have like a whole conversation about he who shall not be named. Um, But a lot of things came out that had been dormant for a long time, particularly around immigration, particularly around Latinos. He who shall not be named in the context of announcing uh, his candidacy, you know, called Mexicans rapists, 
uh, it was pretty unambiguous from the start. And I don't want to say like, oh, everything was all good. And then he who shall not be named reminded everybody like, hey, let's be racist about Mexicans. There was a lot of dark stuff. It's gone all the way back to Pete Wilson in California. Um, a lot of anti-immigration legislation. It's been in the air. But um, to, to what extent were those four years, this time that you were writing, was was that influencing your output? Uh, to what extent were you like watching MSNBC and Fox News and you know, uh, Twitter and, and having that inform your work yeah. during that time between 2016 and 2020 or so. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say Pete Wilson, um, because I feel that like guy was wild. so much of, so much of the feeling, it, you know, it's always like, and that's, I think one of the things that really drove home a lot of the work was that it doesn't, nothing ever feels new. It just feels like deja vu. Right. Like I remember being in middle school and Prop Wing 7 was coming out and we were like in our homeroom just chilling and me and this Cholo and this and uh, this Asian dude and someone else who was undocumented. We were talking and he was like, dude, if 27, I can't even come to school no more. You know, like what's going to happen? Like I'm going to get kicked out. And we were like, nah, no, nah, we're going to we're going gonna to fuck him up. We'll stab somebody. We don't care. <laughs> we got this. We'll take, we'll, you know, we got your back. You come to school anyway. And so like, I felt, like and I remember like. And that was something, you know, I was like, what, 12? I'm not thinking about, you know, immigration discourse and access and and erasures and all, and settler colonial constructs or anything like that. But it was like, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to, you know, we're going we're gonna to stab somebody. We got, we, we're not going anywhere. Don't even trip. Um, but then seeing it, like, manifest and, like, steadily, like, you think things the idea is that people want you to think things are getting better, right? We have a new president. Things are better. Things are better. You know, you know, we, you know, we have, we have a Democrat in office. Things are great. And then you see like the videos of like Haitian refugees getting rounded up with lassos on horseback. Like it is 1848. Like, 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 you know, we have a strong vaquero culture in, in ice. Right. So it's like, <laughs> what the hell? Um, so, but thinking about like that moment in that time in history, I think, that like very specific time when I was writing it, I I did so much of just like just digging in archives that I didn't even feel. I feel like time collapsed, right? I don't feel like time was like stretching out, but it was like straight like all of like from eighteen forty eight to like twenty seventeen was like pressing out on me. So like every time I heard I heard I heard someone say something, I saw something. It was always coming back to like, yep, sounds like you know this feels like this like never it never felt like anything new it just felt like it had just morphed and so now instead it's getting tweeted out live but it's still happening so like it was so that was definitely some of the urgency like i wrote it even though i think i I researched it over like a five six year period five about five year period i think a lot of the poems happened in like a frenzy of like maybe like a six month window where i like drafted a lot of them and then revised a lot of them after that yeah. Well, I, I, when you were writing these, I think this is another question about format. There was a certain point where you're like, ah, you know, I'm finishing up here and, uh, you know, everybody's displaying their work or sharing their work. And I, I'm trying to figure out a way to like print this on a scroll. Was it, wasn't there, uh, you know, you, you, you had some imaginative ideas about how to display some of this work uh did you end up printing that out and and displaying it what was it you know there's a okay 
so in the middle of all of in the middle of this, I decided to go back, uh, you know, in like mid 40s, mid 30s to get an MFA. Right. And so like in the span of like four years, I would say this book finally came together and I wrote another book. Um, so like, so like I've, I've written like two manuscripts, two books in this time. And what I found myself doing and thinking about is the idea of borders and the idea of how like everything's a constraint and a restraint to me personally. Like I think about the page, like the eight and a half of my page as like a new border that like, is like trying to like keep me locked into this format, this shape. So like what I've steadily been doing since I, uh, since this book is like pushing it all out. Like I've been working on like mural poems, been working on scrolls, trying to find like new ways to like do the work, but also knowing that some of this work is experimental and trying to get it back in the community in different ways. So like, what does a mural look like as an experimental poem? So that like, you know, your Theos can go see it, you know? You can go drive by it and experience it or hear it versus having to like buy a book and or get to the library or, you know, navigate whatever to get the access. So like it's like so like it's all kind of rolled into like this big ball of like energy that I've been like writing, writing, writing. So like this one project spilled into a whole new project about like climate and like whiteness. And it's like all over the place the last like three, four years. I, uh, I want to mention now, this is a thing that my mom jokes a lot about, uh, but it is, it's Hispanic heritage half month or <laughs> the first half of Hispanic heritage month, or I don't know how that worked out or who decided it should be the last half of September and the first half of October. But I guess that's, that's what we got. Um, that's not why we invited you on here, by the way, irrelevant, irrelevant, but I am interested in, um, thinking about our political consciousness and our, our cultural consciousness. And a lot of things have happened in the past year and a half in terms of what we pay attention to, what is important, what we think about diversity and representation, uh, police violence, um, Black people, Latinos, Asian Americans, uh, women, if you include the last like three or four years, there has been like a very serious reckoning uh, in our culture. Uh, I, I don't mean to present that naively like, yo, we're all good now because we dealt with this stuff. But it seems like this book was coming out at the apex of that, right? Like I, I got my copy in June of 2020. I don't know what the actual publication month was, but that was really just April. So you're going around and, and reading these poems, you know, in the context of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Um, to what extent were, was this work kind of informing those events? And as you were reading, were, you know, were you getting questions or a part of conversations about how, you know, police violence against black people uh, is, you know, a part of this lineage? You know, were you thinking of it in that way? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's a really good point because, you know, like this entire book, I've never read this book in public. I've never held this book in a public space. It's only been online. Right. Um, but yeah, that is, that is definitely a really great question because that was definitely a subtext to so much of those readings that I was doing. Um, in fact, one of the, one of like the first like classes I did, um, like to a classroom in a college was I was reading the, I, I was reading my poems with the class the day the uh, George Floyd videos got released. And it was like one of those things like, you know what, maybe we don't have to talk about the poems right now. Maybe we can just 
just check in and see how people are doing because, you know, I could talk about, you know, this happening in, you know, 1851, or we can talk about that this happened just a few weeks ago. And so like, that was always sort of a critical moment. Uh, critical, there was always, there was always that critical kind of underlying moments of like, this is historical, but this isn't, this is still happening. Right. And I think that that was something that, unfortunately, yeah, it did, did feel like in some ways that there was an apex of, of all of this energy happening and kind of exposing and this reckoning happening. But I think almost in the same way, we were all at home and we were all seeing these things and like only like we were living through the scroll, right? We were living through the scroll of, of, of whatever social media or any way to connect to people. Now we're seeing was loss. And I think that that definitely pushed some momentum forward to sort of how can we change this? How can we not let this happen? Because I mean, there are moments in here where I know there are not like Eric Garner um, selling Lucy's and things. So like, yeah. how do we, how do we understand like how we're all connected and how are we in our, in our interconnectedness able to like push back and make that change instead of just being in our own silos of saying like, my issue is is a one and yours is not because there's so much work to do um and uh biden is still president <laughs> so there's still is work he? to be done <laughs> <laughs> he still is he's gotten his uh vitamin regimen or whatever <laughs> remember there used to be all these jokes when ronald reagan was president um about how he you know, basically they just like, it was like weekend at Bernie's. They just like propped him up. Somebody walk, walked him around. He, had, he like put a wig on and a giant suit and everything, but he was just kind of losing his marbles. I, uh, I'm, I'm starting to get the same feeling about this guy, man. <laughs> like, I know we've already done, we talked a little bit about weekend at Bernie's as it relates to, uh, Joe Biden on this show. And basically it's like, you know, it's, it's Kamala and AOC kind of just like walking him around at the party, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> trying to, to maintain his relevance but it feels like you know aoc and that wing of the party kind of early on and i'm not trying to make this a biden conversation is like to their credit moving away from that and reminding like this it's not about compromise right now it's about like taking this party in a different direction and it's it's a result of this kind of political and cultural awareness so that's my that's my weekend at bernie's uh, drop. And you see, and, I mean, just you see how easy it is for all of that momentum to just suddenly become inert, right? It just, yeah. All it, you know, it just takes, you know, one dude in West Virginia, you know, or, or a handful of folks in Arizona. Next thing you know, you know, you have to, yeah. you're having to start all over, rebuild it all over. Well, in some ways, that's why um, I think at least like the art is important you know because it is mm -hmm. hard to maintain that level of intensity it would be a lot to ask of this country and everyone to maintain that level of attention and intensity about these issues as serious as they are um and we don't want to wait for you know more tragic episodes in order to pay closer attention and that's why you know i appreciate this book but i also think so much about you know, the way representation has changed in films and in television shows that kind of like maintain that relevance a little bit. Yeah. I wonder if, I mean, do you think about this a little bit as, you know, this, this book as a document in some ways that uh, you said you've spoken with 
college students and young people, you know, that is kind of furthering this conversation a little bit, you know, not to, you know, I'm not putting you in a position to self-aggrandize, but, you know, this kind of art is important in that yeah. way, right? I think so. I think, you know, I think it's really interesting because there's like a, there's like a twofold thing happening for me personally, like as a writer coming from Fresno, right, with this huge lineage of writers coming from Fresno, California, from Bill Levine and Larry Levis and Luis Omar Salinas and Andres Montoya to... Um, Juan Felipe Herrera, who became the U.S. Poet Laureate, to uh, my partner, Ryder Vang, to me, like, you know, and you see, and you see, like, I just named a whole bunch of men, right? <laughs> and then steadily, it's, you know, what I think is, my hope is that these, these more contemporary writers will start seeing um, and, and inspiring just through the work of finding new voices that speak to us and our experiences that helps diversify that so it's not just a whole bunch of old uh old white and old brown dudes just uh making poems here um and also i noticed you little... didn't mention saroyan you didn't mention was, he's was, a fresno was, guy isn't he i was talking about poetry no. <laughs> okay all right all right not literature i wasn't, just I wasn't trying i wasn't i wasn't i wasn't going to prose fully but yes you can add, you can add him in um, but Thank seeing you. that, you know, kind of seeing that in, 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 you know, trying to see uh, what that means for me, but also doing experimental stuff and trying to, like, inspire, like, a new generation of folks to, like, take that risk. Uh, because, to be honest, when this book came out, I would have been happy if, like, four people had read it and no one, like, threw it at me. Right. <laughs> because you don't know, you know, you like you make a book, you know, it, it's the pandemic. I don't see it. I don't see it in real life. I can't tell how people are looking at me when I'm reading it and then seeing, you know, that like momentum and like support and love has been like really overwhelming, but like also heartening to know that there is interest in like these new styles and and risk and hoping that that does kind of create its own movement of writing to like push beyond all the like old structures that have like that have been given to us like in all other things right we've inherited all these these structures you know seven people on the supreme court et cetera et cetera et cetera right like how can we like how like how can we push against that and i think it but i think and i think it does like snowball in a way right we're not going to accept this anymore we're not going to take that we're going to invent something better something new something more more all-encompassing maybe so yeah no, well said. Uh, I'm curious also, I mean, just because I know a little bit of your own life and biography, you know, you uh, are from Fresno, you grew up in Fresno, you lived in, I don't know, you lived some other places, but you were in New York for a time, and then you went back to Fresno, and that's where you did your MFA, and that's where you did much of this writing, I assume. Um, so, you know, to what extent is that place informing this writing? I know, I know, a little bit about Fresno because I'm from Northern California and I know you and other people and the Central Valley and its own uh, cultural importance. Yeah. But, you know, Fresno and the Central Valley, it's a very unique place. You know, I, people are always surprised to learn about how much uh, conservatism there is in California, how much anti-immigrant sentiment there is in California. A lot of that is concentrated in the Central Valley, but also yeah. concentrated in the Central Valley um, as an incredible amount of immigrants and descendants of immigrants and refugees. Um, so, you know, I would imagine this book would be a lot different if you were in you know, New York City, not that New York City doesn't have its own story. Um, but I, I assume Fresno, uh, the place informs this work in a lot of ways. Do you, mm -hmm. did you feel like that as you were writing? Is this, is this place based in some ways? It, it is, it is and it isn't because when I think about it, I wrote 
the biggest chunk of this writing happened when I was living in Chicago. Um, we were living in Chicago for uh, my partner taking uh, um, a position in Chicago at the at the Art Institute, the School of the Art Institute, and I was there away. And it was the first time in my life that I actually had time away from like forty jobs. Um, so, <laughs> so because of not having all those jobs, I had like two or three and I could actually just focus on writing too. So like it helped free up some space, but I, I do think that being able to go away and come back and go away and come back to Fresno does help sort of speak to some of the movements and the eye like the, the visual eye uh, in the work because I found, I think my time in New York was incredibly eye opening for myself, just working uh, with my friend and boss who you met when we were there, Bernardo Palumbo at El Taller. Oh yeah. And just being able to like think in like two, in like two directions suddenly became like a very natural thing to me in working with him. And I think that he helped unlock a lot of, sort of the binaries that I got caught up in living here in Fresno and being like born and raised here and never moving. Um, and so like being able to, to take all that in those three years there and go back, come back here and think through like all that I learned there and what this place means to me helped really give me a new lens to look at. So yes, so yes, it's very much rooted in Fresno and like sort of the erasures and the weirdness of the friction zone that we exist here where it's like tea party USA and UFW forever, you know, just always <laughs> just butting heads. Um, and sometimes that's the case, right? Like I can go down one street and see, you know, food, not bombs. And then down the other, you know, it's like a MAGA rally or something, just truck. Rally. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, man. okay. Yeah. So that kind of, yeah. so I think, I think that does, I think there is that place here within me and knowing like, this is my, my home and my my like my writing area my writing community that like helped nurture me but i had to get away to come back and do it yeah well that makes sense i uh i only ask because i am very personally intrigued by the frictions that you uh live within in your hometown just because you know i grew up in san francisco <laughs> i moved to new york <laughs> Uh, and those, those places, although there is, you know, there's political diversity everywhere. Um, they can be very monolithic and, mm -hmm. and I can be late to realize uh, change in our country when you, when you live in a place that feels monolithic and in some ways it feels like you're on, you know, I have family in Wisconsin, right. And they tell me like, what is it like to live in Wisconsin? It's the same thing, you know, like that that same kind of intense polarization, uh, but like neighbors, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like a conversation that's happening on the television. Um, so I am personally intrigued by that dynamic yeah, it's, there. It's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, for me, I remember the election cycle, the presidential election cycle in 2012 of being in New York and walking down the Upper West Side and everyone asking me, there were like all these tables asking from me and I would just like wave them off, wave them off. Because what I'm used to being here in Fresno is that these are literally people trying to ask me to, like, sign up to be a Democrat or Republican. That's the option. And then finally, I, like, took out my headphone and I was like, no, 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 I'm already registered. And they're like, oh, which bus are you going on? And I didn't realize <laughs> that, like, every corner had, like, people being signed up to go bus to, like, Pennsylvania or another swing yeah. state. <laughs> because that would, that's never 
that's never the case yeah. here. So it was just like, I remember that like, oh, oh, okay. So like, this is the only Democrats live in this region, right? Like in this area. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Unless you go to Staten Island. <laughs> A lot of a uh, lot of Trump signs on Instagram. I, I thought it was I thought it was just the Wu Tang Clan. Okay. So well, it's okay. it's yeah. Staten Island is is uh, it's actually Trump supporters and Wu Tang. That's it. That, those the those are the two groups that are there. <laughs> just so you know, it's just two circles, no Venn diagram. Got it. There's not really a lot of overlap there. <laughs> Although you know what? There's there's got to be a Wu Tang <laughs> Trumper. You know, the Wu Tang is so big. You know what I mean? There's so many people technically who are in the clan. There's got to be one kind of outlier who's like, you know what? <laughs> Don't ask me about politics. <laughs> You know, there's got to be like a Wu Tang anti vaxxer. You know what I mean? There, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I think. We don't. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Oh, you're right. Right. Yeah. I uh, I I would like to before we get out of here, I, I would like to ask you to read again, but I will okay. make this one a dealer's choice. Um, also, because as I was looking at some of my favorites, I was like, wow, some of these. Um, uh, I wouldn't know how to put you in the position to try to read it. It's almost like I uh, I'm like handing you a challenge. Like here, figure which this one, out. Which, you, one, which which is the one that you didn't know you would know how to read? The central. Oh, hold on. These they're the ones I've marked it. You know, this happens a lot when you have a book it's that you good. like, where you like you mark every page. Yeah. So then it's like, well, that doesn't make. I will. Me. <laughs> I will say there are there are poems in this book that I pa- did oh. not. Go ahead. I found it. Sorry. Uh, I think it's it starts on eighty three. Mm-hmm. Amaceta a Mexican lynching and seven artifacts. So it's like, it's the different artifacts. So like there's the oh, yeah, blacked yeah, yeah. out one is pretty straightforward. Um, and I'll hold it up. Right. Obviously by using redactions, you can create, um, a new piece of work and that is yeah, a primary yeah, yeah. source. I love primary sources, but then, uh, yeah. Uh, Plessy Ferguson is included and then their visual definitions. I, I mean, all of this stuff is fun. Like for me, they okay. feel like, uh, like a puzzle. Let me do, let me, uh, let me talk, I'll talk about like two things. One of the ones that I always am frightened by that I've only read once before is the request for information on 85, because that's one of those ones where I thought about the poem and I worked on it, but I never actually considered what it would be like to read it <laughs> like to people. Nice. Um, nice. So, yeah. so every time I read it, um, it always shifts. Um, I'm always kind of thinking about it. Um, but this is actually inspired by, um, driving in Chicago and hearing the NPR article, uh, not an, an NPR article, but a commercial somewhere after listening to NPR about doing a request for information from ice, looking for more, um, um, immigration detention space. And so like, it got me thinking about how, like, how the, how the lynching and the violences have moved from like, you know, informal hate posse lynch mobs to like state agents to like full industrial complex. When you start thinking about like, oh, here we are. Let's see how can we do this and do this effectively with the best ROI, you know. So that's kind of the space I found myself in when I was writing this. Um, so I'll read it. I'll read it. That's um, the title is a request for information ICE regarding immigration detention services expansion 2017 Chicago St Paul Detroit Salt Lake source. 
multiple possible detention sites to hold criminal aliens and other immigration violators. One definition in terms, multiple consisting of, including or involving more than one possible, having an indicated potential, potential expressing possibility, detention of holding in custody, custody, immediate charge and control as over a ward or a suspect exercised by a person or an authority control to have power over the other power possession of control authority or influence over others possession the act of having or taking into control control to have power over the other to obtain market information for planning purposes and determine appropriate strategies to meet the agency's requirements the government will not pay for any information ICE is responsible for the detention of individuals in removal proceedings and who are amenable to removal from the U.S. Clarifications. Figure one, appropriate strategies. In the absence of information, the evidence of absence cites erasure, removal, Rita's expulsion, deportation, void, homogeneity, violence, expendable, or amenable. Read as viable for removal. Three, <clears throat> legal guidance. Facilities shared with other detained populations will be considered as, the, as long as appropriate separation. The ideal <clears throat> Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896 ruling by the Supreme Court, considered an underlying fallacy in the assumption of the Constitution of the United States can put them into the same plane. For visual definitions, the ideal facility or facilities will provide minimum medium and maximum security. Figure two, maximum. Figure three, medium. Figure four, minimum. The ideal facility or facilities will provide minimum, medium, and maximum security. The government has priced detention contracts with an all-in bed day rate. Are there other pricing structures that could be used to better distribute between the government and a contractor, which might result in better operational and business outcomes for all parties? Five, the de-escalation of the human. Human, man, fallible, earthbound, weak, someone, somebody, anybody, anything, thing, stuff, matter, Material, resource, replaceable, product, cost, value, sale, revenue, profit. The government has various requirements for operation at its facilities. Based on your experience, which of these requirements drive the most cost? Why? Are there any changes to requirements that you might recommend that would be better meet best value, i.e. by reducing costs substantially without sacrificing the effectiveness of core operations? Does the contractor have any innovative ideas for leveraging technology, data, or analytics in order to decrease costs or increase staff efficiency in detention facilities? Please briefly describe. Six, supporting data and projections. Figure five, chart. Revenue potential. Revenue and acceptable level of deaths. Death over revenue. Legend. Death, revenue, threshold of acceptable, acceptable death. Trajectory, trajectory intentionally omitted due to intellectual property rights. Figure six, chart. Profit maximization, number of rapid deportations and profit potential. Number of days before deportation over profit. 
legend, detainee time in custody, profit, threshold of acceptable death, rate, a rate of death, trajectory emitted due to intellectual property rights and trade secrets. If you're unable to comply with ICE 2011 performance-based national detention standards, what would it take? Number seven, 2011 operations manual ICE performance-based detention standards, order safety, security, order safety, security, safety activities, safety, security, order, 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 security, justice, order, 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 care, mandate, justice, justice, management, order, 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 administration, 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 management, management. Wow. I, I, uh, you remember that game in school, you play popcorn, you know, like one person would read and then they would choose the next person who would read. Then they had to make sure you were following along. Uh, as I was reading this, I was like, Oh Jesus, if we were playing popcorn, but it's like this, this formatting that last section, I'm holding it up again. Uh, I was like, how's Cody can't read this. He can't, he's not going to be able to read this. Uh, and instead it built this really chilling crescendo. Um, I only mentioned popcorn because I was trying to read. And I was like, wait, hold on. What part of the page is he on now? <laughs> but it's, I mean, to hear you, it, it's actually clarifying. You know, as I read it, of course, as you said, what are the limitations I read left to right? You know, um, yeah. just because that's my cultural understanding. But, but you're starting with this yeah. content. I, mean, I, I have so many questions about this piece. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. But I am curious about how much of this is primary source. Are you just playing with stuff that you found in the codes? In which case, you know, this is like a bit of Lenny Bruce where he would do stand up just by reading, you know, municipal legal penal codes or whatever, you know, without a joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, much, yeah, please I tell me more this, about everything this. on the everything on everything that the sort of legalese on the right side. That was all straight from the document. Okay. And everything on the left hand larger side was all invention of me thinking and occupying the horror of what if I were the profit maker and profiteer and how would I apply for it? Yeah. And it's chilling. And that last part, the last part is actually just taking the the, the different um, sections of the ICE standard. Um, it's like order management, safety, justice, and accountability or something. So is this like a word cloud? Is this like the amount of times that those words show up in a given document? Or do you take those words? I took the liberties and just kind of like laid them and, yeah. and just kind of over, superimposed them over each other until I was okay with what it looked like. Some of this really is like, uh, I don't know if you're offering this on your website, but you know, I would love like a framed version of security order, order, safety, security, because it starts to look like, you know, it feels very Orwellian in this way, or mm -hmm. like the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the tyranny of bureaucracy where it's like, that's what it really, this is what it oppression does. actually looks it, like in action. It really is. I mean, truly, it, I mean, that's kind of the thing when you look at, when you like boil it down and you look at all of these, all of the sort of mechanics of, of, of their structure and their hand and they have, you know, you have a handbook like any organization, any, any organization yeah. is trying to function and be it to, you know, serve the community, earn profits or, you know, remove and omit people. They're going to try to function efficiently in yeah. the darkest sort of ways. And yeah, that's kind of where it came. And I mean, 
you know, I'll say this. One of the things for me is even when I thought I was done, I wasn't done um, because like it just it just kept going and going. So there's like probably like 15, 20 poems that didn't make it to the book because it would never stop. Um, one of the last poems I actually wrote was um, in the middle section where I found like a lynching tree that had a TripAdvisor spot, like just a TripAdvisor. Like, you know, in Texas, you can go look up trip. You can look up the Goliath hanging tree. And it's straight up like there's when I was writing the book, there was like five more. Five, the most recent five were like crazy tree, man. Great picnic, though, you know, or, you know, wow. I mean, it's true. It's, it's, it's really it's just like it was straight up like that. It was just like, you know, bummer of a tree. Spooky, you know, 10 out of 10 would go yeah. again, you know, things like that. Jesus. And it's like. <laughs> It's so like dark. that kind of, you know, not acknowledging that history of how easy we can sweep it away and become like a TripAdvisor spot is like how yeah. easy that happens, right? Is that fear of like trying to like put this out there into the world and just yeah. kind of yell into the void and hope yeah. we can kind of like keep pushing forward, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, this book feels like a yell into the void, except it wasn't avoid at all it was a huge group of people that were ready for it um and it's been really well received so i i just want to offer my congratulations i think this is a beautiful piece of work i read it as soon as it came in the mail i re have reread it several times since then it's a real accomplishment and uh you know being your friend and knowing what you're interested in what you're trying to capture and you know what the limitations are of this medium it's it's really wonderful to see this come to fruition um and i'm not i'm not the only one i will now go into the section of the show where i embarrass uh our friend a little bit and say that uh he is a uh american book award winner <laughs> and a national book award finalist uh, for his book the name again is borderland apocrypha his name is anthony cody c-o-d-y i encourage all of you uh to get a copy he has a website but you can find it wherever fine books are sold uh Thanks so much for coming on. This was great. I miss you, first of all, so it's really great to see you. And also, I get to I get to pin you down and 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 hear more about your work. This has really informed my reading of it. I'll go back and and read it again. But thanks so much for being here. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Always always fun to chat. We'll have you back on. We'll talk. You know, next time you come on, we'll talk about Drake and. Um, uh, we ran out. Of, unfortunately, we're out of time. You know how like uh, didn't Jimmy Kimmel used to do that? He was like, uh, like, oh, my apologies to Matt Damon. Uh, we ran out of time. That's Maybe fair. I'll start doing a thing. It was like, oh, my apologies to Drake. <laughs> we ran out of time. I'm a chaos guy. I'm a chaos guy. Everything yeah. after. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Yes. <laughs> Push the limits. Uh, and also, I'm very glad that you remember Azatlan Underground and the song We Didn't Cross the Border, The Border Crossed Us. I, it's been 20 years, man. I, I'm just... Uh, don't don't date it like that. It's been, tw it's been 20 years, sir. <laughs> you're the one... You know, we, you're not alone, by the way. We share many things. We are both very proud Irish Mexicans. <laughs> and we're also people who finally decided to get our MFAs when we were uh, almost middle-aged. <laughs> so, Correct. But there's true. value there, you know? If I try tried to do anything like that in my 20s i would have just wasted all my time because that's what the 20s are for uh so yes thanks again anthony for being here our listeners the book is borderland apocrypha uh by anthony cody c-o-d-y the cover art is by our very own josue rojas so shout out to josue uh it really is a very chilling and powerful image and a wonderful book 
Thanks, as always, uh, to our producer, our fearless producer, Eming, who keeps us sounding good and on task. Thank you so much. Thanks, as always, to our listeners. Until next time, quest on, everybody. This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.